The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Uh, joining me for the hour is Victor Shing, uh, who has a deep bench of knowledge when it comes to interest rates, monetary policy, and knows a little bit about things that work and don't, given some of the stuff he's done with the uh, CFA Institute. Victor, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? How did you get involved, interested in markets, in particular the monetary interest rate side, and what are you doing currently? Yeah, sure. Yep. Thank you, Michael. I started on the interest rate trading desk around, uh, it was around like January 2010-ish, initially as a helper to the portfolio managers and traders. And basically, I was like a really typical old school um, buy side apprentice, per se, to the um, senior people. Then I just took on more responsibilities and started to analyze Fed policy because our Fed analyst was leaving. So from the Fed, it taught me that I need to learn a lot more about what others are driving the market. So from the Fed, it became like segue into other sectors like swaps and uh, treasury futures and as well as a lot of the spread products. So uh, then I started to focus on a lot on the interaction between the rates market and the corporate credit, as well as because there's a lot of movement between the U.S. rates market and foreign rates market. So kind of step into other markets such as Boons and UK guilds. So basically, the rates market is like... I would say you get into one area, then you expose to more areas that you become aware that you need to know about them. Then it's like a domino effect. Yeah, no, and and, and that kind of goes to the the line you often hear that the Fed is the global central bank, kind of leads to everything else uh, for the most part. I want to I want to go through some of the writings that you've you've put out on the CFA Institute, but first maybe let's outline your view of interest rates for the remainder of the year with the caveat that interest rates has, there's a lot of nuances to what rates we're talking about. What are your thoughts on the way rates have uh, behaved in the last several weeks with this, in quotes, regional bank crisis? And what are some of the unintended consequences of the drop in yields that we've seen? Yeah, the drop in yields has been quite positive to risk assets. I think that this is contrary to a lot of the consensus belief. So. The sentiment was really bearish on the risk market side. 
I think for most of the past three weeks. But I think people are less sensitive to what's going on in the rates market because if you look at the rates market, it has been pretty big hurt. It has been acting as a really big hurdle to the risk sentiment for the for much of the past, I would say nine months, starting from the middle of 2022. So going forward with rates at the Present level, it has contributed to what people call the easier financial conditions. So it helps the Fed to transmit easier policy to the broader economy. And this is from the Fed's perspective. So the Fed sees, oh wow, uh, the rates are lower. It actually offsets some of the tightening effects we have been doing. And this is consistent with what the Fed is trying to achieve. So the Fed will welcome. A lower rates, given what's happened to the regional banking sector, as well as the constricting effect on credit conditions, so the Fed will welcome this. But the broader market did not see lower rates as a benefiting factor to the risk asset market. So I think some people were confused about why equities were doing so well lately, and this is a direct effect of lower rates. And if rates stay. At the present level, or go even lower going to year end, this would be, I would say, net positive to the risk asset complex. As long as credit spreads stay fairly tight, right? I mean, the the exactly which, actually, which I think was kind of interesting about this this recent move. So yes, you had a whatever the headline was, right? The the biggest drop in you know whatever the the, the two year I think since nineteen eighty seven, as I recall, was the headline, which you would think would have. Sounded like it would have coincided with a real credit event, meaning spreads widening, but that didn't really happen uh, in any dramatic way. Exactly. Yeah. If you look at a credit spread, we're essentially back to the middle of last year. Uh, so it unwound a lot of the widening scenes. I think the biggest widening was seen during the pension blow up in the UK in around September and October of last year. So some of those. Ripples they are being offset by the present renewed tightening credit spreads, and if you combine the credit spread, just use that credit spread as a five-year proxy, and combine that with a five-year Treasury yield, you will get the effective funding cost for a lot of the corporate issuers. So their funding cost has declined. The net funding cost, effective funding cost, has declined, and it's also back to、uh, the summer of 2022 levels. So it has been quite beneficial to a, a lot of the risk asset issuers. Has that been surprising to you that it has not been perceived as increased default risk? I mean, th- that I think is is sort of the the odd dynamic. I mean, a lot of that obviously is because of locked in loans at much lower rates, but at some point, this, these debts are going to have to be rolled over. Right, these loans are going to have to be rolled over into Higher rates. How do you think about、uh, the why、uh, in terms of spreads not really blowing out? Right. Yeah. So I think we need to look at the spread and understand what the spreads imply. So the corporate spreads that we all look at, they mostly reflect the bigger issuers, the bigger participants in the secondary or the, and the primary、uh, bond market. So we're talking about Apple. We're talking about Oracle, the big issuers. We are not talking about the small, medium-sized enterprises. I think a lot of the loans that are at risk are the commercial real estate loans,、um, off, that's backed by office space, backed by perhaps some of the old malls,、um, backed by some of the 
I think some of the more specialized properties, not the residential. I think residential are doing fairly well. So we're talking about a smaller sector that's being impacted, that's been severely impacted. I would say, but this will have a lot less impact on the bigger issuers, bigger corporates. So there is,、uh, I think, there's a bifurcated market. One part of the market is doing really well. Like the large caps, and the large caps dominate the credit spreads. So this is why that the credit spread reflecting some of the strongest participants in the market. They are doing well, but if you look at some of the lower credit borrowers, some of the、um, participants in the commercial real estate sector, these are more niched participants. They are in a lot of pain. I, I think we should not dismiss. The pain, the pain is real, but the pain does not. We cannot just extrapolate that pain and say, "Well, all the issuers are facing the same pain." And I think、um, this is what the credit spread is telling. This is the story of a bifurcated market. So this is my view of why the credit spread has not tightened as much. Also, going back to what you mentioned about lower rates. Lower rates has helped the bond funds a lot, and the bond funds are the funds that has hold a lot of the CMBS. So by treasuries going lower and treasuries going from becoming a risk asset in two thousand twenty two to become a haven asset in two thousand twenty three, it makes it a lot easier for the bond funds to hedge their risk. So in a way, having some. Underperforming CMBS and、uh, credit products on the portfolio is no longer as damaging as in 2022, when there was very little for the bond, big bond funds to hedge. And if we are still in a really, really high inflation environment where the inflation is climbing, this would make the bond funds. This would create a scenario where the banking risk. The banking contagion spread into the non-bank sector, so we see issues from the banks metastasizing into the big mutual funds in the big pensions. Then we get a huge problem, and then we'll get a real widening credit spread. But this is not happening because, like you said, the rates have declined, and a lot of the contagion effect has been ring fenced for now, from going from. The banking sector into the non-bank sector. So this is the, the credit story ties back into the rates story as well. Well, and I think I think you just said it correctly, right? It's the it's the for now part, which which is the question mark. So have you have you done any historical analysis around other periods where,、uh, to your point, the smaller companies they're more impacted than the larger ones. Larger ones seem okay, but then. There's a lag effect, and then the larger ones start to respond in terms of their credit spread movement. Is there is there any precedent around the idea that the periphery gets hurt first, and the lag is X number of months until you start seeing it in the in the mega cap debt issuances? Right. I try to look at some of the precedents, and one thing I was looking at was the European banking contagion, the European、uh, sovereign debt, debt crisis. This is kind of like that. So the smaller peripheries, but in that case, it was smaller sovereign peripheries having some issues. Then it kind of spreads to some of the core sovereign issuers. But it's kind of, but even back then, it was not that bad because core was holding up 
pretty steadily. But then I'm not a credit person, so my credit knowledge is definitely lacking compared to some of the credit sector participants. So there's only so much I can do to draw comparison. And my focus on race kind of led me to compare this with, say, two thousand eight. So there's a difference between now and two thousand eight, and this kind of also circles back to what you differentiate between the periphery and the core. So in two thousand eight, why things were so bad back in two thousand eight was because MBS was used to back and secure all sorts of loans and transactions. So all the in- Interbank transactions. A lot of the interbank transactions were backed by the MBS, and a lot of the non-bank transactions, interactions between, say, big mutual fund A and hedge fund B, those were also secured by MBS. So the common collateral was blowing up in the whole financial sector at once. This means everyone's was blowing up at once. Every Loan every transaction was becoming at risk because the underlying collateral that was rated triple A become became a contagion in itself. This sort of everything blowing up at once was the biggest threat to the financial market. But now we don't see that now, given how we have this differentiation between periphery and the core. And and if we want to draw parallel to 2020, there was also a macro scenario where all the credit was blowing up because of the lockdown and consensus bearish outlook across the entire credit market. So when all the credit was blowing up, it was extremely difficult to hedge. And now we just have a partial. Blow up in part of the portfolio versus rest of the portfolio that's been hedged by declining rates and rising treasury valuation. So, yeah, right now is definitely more benign than the past. But I think a credit person would be better to answer the question of: Would this periphery start to contaminate the rest of the portfolio, and what are the channels? The channels I'm looking at is the bank versus non-bank, and for now, this contagion channel is still ring-fenced and is hedged by the declining treasury rates. Speaking about、uh, the idea of periphery versus core, let's let's make that parallel to you know sovereign emerging versus sovereign developed in terms of the the bond market. Are we past the stage where sovereign debt looks riskier than? Than taxpayer asset、uh, debt. I mean, you know, gilts got a lot of headlines last year with the UK. Now we're seeing the effects of treasuries on banks with the speed with which duration got cratered. Are we are we past that, or are there still some ongoing concerns around sovereign debt in this kind of environment? So it's all、uh, inflation question. So inflation is the several trillion dollar. Question that would answer everything. So, if inflation continues to decline, then the sovereign bond risk would continue to decline as well. And if inflation resurges and inflation back to say fourth quarter two thousand twenty two levels, then we'll see further pressure on the pensions, further pressure on the big bond funds, and this will exacerbate the current regional bank issues because the commercial real estate issues will pop back up. A lot of the bond funds would not be able to hedge 
some of the more per- periphery losses, then the periphery losses would become magnified. And with lower treasury valuation, so the, the whole fund situation would become more at risk and we will see higher probability of the banking risk spread into the non-bank sector, which is harder for the regulators to respond to because the regulators know how to respond to bank risk. This is what they look at every day, even though the effective response has been, I think, I think some people raise, definitely raise some questions about the effective, effectiveness of the response. But compared to this, it would be a lot harder for the regulators to respond to the non-bank contagions. Imagine all the mutual funds are having redemptions at once, then that would be a bigger blow up than the banking sector. It would be magnitudes of what the UK faced during the pension crisis in the, at the start of the fourth quarter last year. I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I keep going back to any real crisis has to be one that, in quotes, they can't fix. Right, it's, it's like you can fix a, a banking crisis by securing depositors, which is what they did. Uh, you can't necessarily do it if it's in a very fragmented, dispersed way. But on, on the point about inflation sovereign risk, I want to I want to push a little bit further on that. The, the it never made sense to me the idea that sovereign debt would be riskier than than corporate debt, even when you factor in the duration part of it. I mean, governments own us through taxation, so. Why is it that that narrative has been out there? Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the idea, for example, that Apple and Google are in quotes safer than U.S. government debt because they have cash on balance. We don't, and they're global. What it, what's wrong with that that narrative, if anything? That idea that sovereign is riskier than everything else. Yeah, I think a blanket statement on sovereign being risky than everything else is probably, um, I would say. It should should not be a blanket statement. That's that's my own opinion. Because a sovereign, if you look at the U.S. or the U.K., for example, these sovereigns still have a lot of capability to monetize the duration risk. At least in the U.S., being the holder of the reserve currency, if inflation is even at the current or lower levels. I think the Fed would be able to monetize duration risk if it leads to a pension crisis. So I would be hesitant to say that the sovereign debt in the U.S. is riskier than Apple. So it has to be a conditional statement such as if inflation instead of the 6% headline, we get like a 12% headline. Then, of course, sovereign debt would be probably having a lot more duration headwind than, say, Apple, I think we're not there yet. So I would not be making a very big statement about, oh, sovereigns are very much at risk now. I think we have to combine that with a market view, forward market view on what inflation would be. Then we make a statement about sovereign versus, it's relative value. It's definitely, it's a moving goalpost depending on data and depending on how data con- constricts monetary policy. And the UK and the European sovereigns definitely have a lot less room to respond to sovereign debt crisis than the US. And this ties back to role of the dollar and what one has a future outlook about the dollar going forward. So, But then this is a whole different Topic, whole, whole different discussion. Let's talk about um, 
some market-based indicators that you track to try to get a sense of where rates might be going. A lot of people will look at Fed futures. A lot of others will look at relative relationships. I know you put a piece out uh, for the CFA Institute around copper relative to gold as a ratio. I happen to like lumber to gold, but I'm a little bit biased given my own research there. The name of that article for those in the audience is the copper gold ratio, a dependable leading indicator on rates. Um, First of all, what made you focus on that and what were some of the conclusions you came up with? Copper and gold ratio is a big uh, focus for Gunlock. So I'm on the West Coast and a lot of the bond funds are also on the West Coast. So we can't kind of follow each other. And Gunlock like to focus on copper gold ratio. And he will use it to, I don't think he used it to predict, but he uses it as a reference on where the 10-year will be trading. So um, that's why that became focused on the copper gold ratio. And in my research, it seems that copper gold ratio, so Gala focused on the gap between copper gold ratio and the 10-year, and he believes 10-year will converge toward copper gold ratio. But there are some reasons to question whether you fully converge, whether the gap would disappear between the two. So one reason is if you take copper and gold and do a ratio of the two, you will cancel out some of the common denominators. So both copper and gold are sensitive to the dollar because commodity, they are denominated in the dollar. So by taking a ratio, one would erase a lot of the dollar impact, but the treasury uh, the treasury security and the 10-year yield is still sensitive to the direction of the dollar. Sometimes it's positive correlated, other times it's negative, depending on the trading regime. So this is why that by taking this ratio, one would take out impact of the dollar and you use, I would say, let uh, a more dollar agnostic instrument and track it versus a uh, treasury yield, which is a dollar-sensitive instrument, I think one would naturally get a gap. I think this is uh, a shortfall of the dollar, the do- uh, sorry, the um, copper gold ratio versus the treasury yield. Do you find any of this stuff a little kind of voodoo-like? Like when you hear Gunlock, I, and it's, it's funny because I'm actually a big fan of Gunlock. He has a, his approach is almost entirely intermarket analysis-based in, in the way that he frames things, which you know, is kind of why I gravitate towards it. But you know, as somebody who is quantitative in nature and looks at the data. Do you find that these kinds of things when they're out in the media have real merit, um, or is it just something that sounds good, but doesn't, doesn't really work on paper? Yeah. It, I, I, I would not say is voodoo per se. Uh, I think they all, they are useful in us in some ways, but they would, they probably would not be the only thing that one would look at. So it would be helpful. For example, you mentioned about lumber and go, I think, I look at that before as well, and I find it useful. But I would not say only look at lumber and gold. I would look at other indicators. So this would be a contributing factor into one's view. You help one to form a view. So one would look at all sorts of things. And I think Gunlock also looks at all sorts of things. I, I respect him a lot. So so yeah, that's, that's how I think of it. I think one would not look at one thing, but this would be like part of the toolkit and one would, at least um, the reason why I wrote about that article is that I think one just have to know about is intricacies, what it may track and what it may not track. And in what 
circumstances such as when dollar is moving wildly and the dollar gold ratio may not be as sensitive to the treasury yield as a result. So I think this is why that I'm focusing a lot on the copper gold ratio versus the treasury yield just to further understand how it will move under volatility scenarios. By, by the way, I agree with that 100% because where that where that connects with the portfolio management process and in narrative, you know, I run rules-based funds, but in narrative is if you're only looking at one thing, looking at one thing leaves you susceptible to false signals, right? Type exactly, type exactly errors, right? Whereas if you have multiple confirming signals, it makes it maybe a higher probability that the message from one signal is not a false signal if kind of multiple things are confirming. So, and I'll even relate that to kind of the most recent thing I've been putting out there, which is you know, since last week, a week and a half ago, I said I think third week might be sort of the start of a correction. Conditions are there. I wasn't saying that haphazardly. It's because from my world, that's where a lot of indicators, and I'm think I'm going to be proven right, are all kind of lining up to say this is maybe a high risk starting point. May not end up being the case, but the odds of a false signal are less when you have multiple signals that are uncorrelated to that signal kind of confirming. Yeah, I definitely agree. So um, as you get more data and more data converging toward a single conclusion, so I think it's, it's reasonable to to kind of aggregate everything together and see how it impacts your thesis. Speaking about... Um... We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. How things impact the thesis. I have to give you a lot of credit. You were um, you were spot on. You, you put a piece out in August on the CFA Institute website, the title of which is "Demand Destruction: Two Reasons to Be Skeptical." And it has been pretty remarkable how there really hasn't been that, that much demand destruction. People are still out and about spending uh, despite higher rates. Uh, layout first of all. Well, what what were the reasons to be skeptical back then? Uh, has anything changed since then, since you wrote that piece? And at what point will the consumer start to pull back? Because we all see the same data, right? Credit card usage at all-time highs, you know, savings level going round trip post-COVID. At some point, this stuff has to matter, but consumers just seemingly don't care. Right. The service sector has been doing really well. And this is not just in the U.S. This is actually in China as well. So both China and the U.S. services are doing well, but the goods sector, the manufacturing has declined. And I think part of the reason is the U.S., if you look at a lot of the negative headlines is in the, in the tech sector, is in the rate-sensitive tech sector, is in finance, which is also a beneficiary of the booming tech sector in the past. But if you look at the grassroots I'm getting a lot of grassroots anecdotal feedback about electricians getting earning about 250k per year and that's doing selective work and a lot of the I would say small businesses before the regional bank situation they were actually doing fairly well the the local demands has been high I think part of the reason is at least 
uh, from my perspective, I'm in California. So we recently, I think a lot of people received $300 to $350 of gasoline rebate. There were a lot more stimulus. Uh, some small business, there were, there were a lot more grant opportunities by the state. So we have this way of fiscal stimulus that's hitting the market. Sorry, hitting the real economy, not the market. And this is something that I think a lot of the analysts, they kind of miss out about because this is not a really market-driven thing and it's more happening in the grassroots and it's not tied to the tech sector. It's not tied to some of the most visible um, industries, but it is real and it's hitting the real households. It's putting money into people's pocket. I know $300 is not, some people say, well, $300 is nothing, but I think to some of the lower income folks, $300 is a thing. And um, combined with other government support, this fiscal drive is nothing to be dismissed about. And it is still happening. I think the California $300 to $350 checks that were mailed out like beginning of this year. And last year, there were also some stimulus. Uh, I'm not too aware of about the details. And some of the small business grants that were being given the in the second quarter of this year, I think some of the deadlines are in May, and this is in California alone. There are definitely a lot more programs out there in other states. So this is still happening, and this is offsetting some of the demand destruction we're seeing, at least that was predicted by uh, many economists, because this is more micro, this is more happening outside of the trading floors where people looking at big data, big data, big data may miss. I think this is one factor. And the other factor would be, if you look at global de- developments, um, China reopening is a factor, is actually impacting some of the Eurozone cities because the Chinese tourists they have flocked to uh, they have returned and they have flocked to a lot of the like I think Spain, Italy, and some of the Eurozone destinations. Probably not London, uh, less so about the US. But yeah, this also matters because a lot of people kind of dismiss about the impact of the China reopening, and I think many believe that is a local story, but. I think it's a global story and it's uh, definitely moving a lot of the spare cash abroad and is slowing the demand destruction aspect as well. Yeah, I mean, that that part is, I think, um, interesting. And although I, I do think that the, the rhetoric around the China reopening has proven out to not be fully true. Yes, there's an effect, as you alluded to, but it's not sort of a, uh, a burst of activity. It's kind of a, a gradual drip that's just happening to your point around tourism and, and spending in all kinds of other places, but just not all at once like it was in the U.S. Exactly. Yeah, definitely not a huge wave. Also, uh, the government has been very, I would say, cautious, and this has not loosened the constraint about the real estate sector. So the government has been very cautious about stimulus, and the government has actually explicitly warned against doing stimulus, and they were afraid that the real estate market would, the bubble would revive. So there's a very big concern on that as well. So this kind of, like you said, this is a very, what's the best word? I think controlled reopening. 
it's not everything bursting at once. This is like, okay, let's let some of the, some parts of the tourism, let's let this go. Let's not let that part go. So yeah, I think this is different than the U.S. reopening where everything was happening at once. Let's talk about outside of China. Let's talk about uh, Japan. I mean, last year was pretty wild in terms of currency volatility across the board, but the yen really got a lot of uh, attention. I haven't actually checked recently. I'll do it right now as we're chatting how the yen has been behaving. But do you get a sense that the volatility uh, is largely over when it comes to the yen and how the BOJ has responded? or are we still going to see some some gyrations there? I mean, you can clearly have a downtrend, but just one that's more gradual. Right. So, um, and this is also tied to the global rates development. When rates were rising across uh, the developed economies, the Eurozone, US, and Japan as well, this kind of put a lot of pressure on the BOJ's euchre control policy. And in December, the BOJ raised its yield cap to 50 basis points in the 10-year sector. And markets have been just trying to test that line on the sand repeatedly. And every time market tests that line on the sand, it forces the BOJ to print yen to buyback bonds to suppress the rise in interest rates. So, and back to what you were saying about this border trend, is the BOJ going to face more pressure? So if we have declining rates going into the year end, this will alleviate the BOJ from a lot of the pressure. So the BOJ will not face this global rise in rates that push up Japanese yields. So without having to defend the 50 basis point UCAP, if the JGB's declining yield following the treasury, following the boons, then the BOJ would have a lot less work to do. So, But conversely, if we have a rebound in inflation and the global rates rise again, then you put the BOJ in the tough spot as well. Combined with BOJ's recent guidance by the new BOJ governor, Ueda, I hope I pronounced his name correctly. Basically, there's no immediate and there's no drastic pivot from Karuda's policy. So the BOJ will still remain easy and a lot easier than the global, the rest of the global central banks. This means if the global rates rise, the BOJ will be putting out as much effort to print the yen to defend the 50 basis point UCAP as before. And this would be a very bearish outcome for the yen. But of course, if the interest rates decline, the BOJ would not be put into such difficult position. And even if the BOJ maintains a dovish position, the yen would not face as much pressure in that scenario if the global race does not force the market to test the 50 basis point line on the sand. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Let's talk about events or things that 
you're keeping an eye on that are coming that could have big impacts on rate volatility, not just in the U.S., but globally. Everyone always focuses on CPI and you know, all the sort of, I keep joking, most important CPI release until the next one, right? Um, <laughs> what, what, what other things should people be looking at and focusing on as, as catalysts beyond the obvious? Well, if we look at globally, this would, I think this would get into the difficult topic of um, talking about the ongoing war and talking about the tension in the, in the, over the Taiwan Strait. So these are all difficult and very controversial topics and it's kind of actually difficult for markets to discuss now because I think when people have clearly taken sides on these issues, I'm a, just a pure market participant. I don't really, I don't have a personal stake on how outcomes will manifest. But I think even if we talk about these issues, I think there's a lot more people nowadays in the world that look at the geopolitical outcomes like a spectator sport, they, they almost appears as, as if they have, say, uh, we're rooting for team A versus team B. But I think as market participants, we should just look at the outcomes, but, but it's kind of hard to discuss about these issues. So yeah, the, the geopolitical stuff is definitely uh, input into inflation. But at least right now, I think things have quieted down a little bit on this front. But yeah, this is the global aspect of issues that impact inflation. You, you've alluded to it before. It's like if inflation picks up, and that's been a, a thesis that's been out there that we're going to see sort of a, another resurgence of inflation. I remain personally pretty skeptical of that, but who the hell knows? What are your thoughts on on the idea that inflation just stays elevated? I keep going back to if you have any kind of real credit events that gets you back to your 2% inflation, that creates unemployment, that does all the stuff that's needed to break inflation. Do you think we're going to see a resurgence in inflation? And if so, this time around, what can the central banks do to try to counter that next wave? Yeah, if we get a resurgence in inflation, most likely it would not be domestically led. It would be like geopolitical event that would like further disruption to supply chains or some sort of like a commodity surge uh, due to supply shock. And this would constrain the central bank, bank's policy response. And you would, I think you would mirror what we have seen before. But like you said, if we get a real credit event without geopolitical events creeping in to create supply shock, vice versa, then the credit event, the domestic catalyst will likely overcome the foreign catalyst, then I think you will get the demand destruction scenario that we briefly talked about earlier. Then the credit event will lead to tightening credit standards and you would, you would, the contagion will spread from the regional banks and into other banks and the broader credit condition will tighten. A lot of the small and medium-sized enterprises would face challenges getting loans. And they, even for the ones that get loans, they will have to pay a higher rate. So this would be a disinflationary catalyst. And this would contribute to what you mentioned earlier, to decline in, decline in inflation scenario. So this would get you where inflation could get back to the to Fed's target or even lower. So there's nothing magical about Fed's 2% target. I mean, it could be like 35 or it could 
be 1.2. So there's nothing magical about two. It could well decline below Fed's target. So yeah, and in that case, I, I see a credit event as a valid catalyst to bring inflation down if it gets out of control and if it spreads to from the banking, from the regional banks to the bigger banks and to the non-banks. Because a lot of the big corporations, they don't use bank loans as much as the small banks because they issue bonds in the in the broader credit market. So a broader spread widening will impact those funds and it would dampen their expansion outlook and it will reverberate back into the labor market as well. So this would be the this inflationary scenario. Yeah, the thing is, you know, they probably don't want to have a credit event before an election. <laughs> Right, they can avoid it, uh, but who knows, right? Because then, if if there is something before an election, and then they come in and and claim credit for stopping the bleeding, then maybe the incumbent party stays in power. Yeah, these are these are just more other dynamics. Uh, I want to talk about just some of the services that you provide to institutions, types of clients that you have. Talk about your business for a bit here, and what are some of the things that your clients are maybe uh, focusing on or trying to get more thoughts from you on? Uh, well, without going into specifics, um, basically, I think a lot of what we discussed, I think there's, there's nothing too special about, say, what everyone looks at. I think what markets are interested in is what everyone is interested in because markets, when things move markets, people become focused on what moves markets and it impacts everyone's uh, portfolios. So that's why that I focus a lot on inflation because inflation is driving everything. But if the next thing emerges that overcomes inflation, then I will be looking at that thing. And I think everyone else will be looking at that thing. So yeah, I think that's the beauty of the markets. There's no set way to say, well, this thing is important or that thing is important because everything changes. And I think there's a lot of things that are fungible and that's what the beauty of it. So yeah, um, I focus on what people are interested in and I do analysis. And sometimes I think I even do some training for the new traders and other things as well. So yeah, I'm a small business and I don't have like huge capacity, like some of the bigger firms. So I just, try to do my best and provide what I can provide without overpromising. Yeah, by the way, that, that to your point, that dynamic nature of markets is exciting, but also maddening and creates a certain degree of frustration, right, among colleagues, investors. People always want to think in terms of probabilities, but static probabilities. They don't recognize that there's a Bayesian uh, way of looking at markets, right, where you factor in new information, probabilities change, you have to adjust that's hard for a lot of people to do unless you've been at this for a while, have come up with models and then try to see how those models, what they tell you about the short term um, in reality. Yeah, exactly. And uh, some of my past models have worked and then stopped working. So a big part of it is, I think, willing to let go about one's framework and changing the framework according to the macro regime. So hopefully macro regimes don't change too much. But I think when they do change, when we get a regime change, I think these are the stuff that would be very um, interesting and you bring a lot of opportunities because I think you alluded to that earlier. I think it's hard for people to 
change one's framework. And sometimes market regimes change, but people's framework. I think people get sentimental about their framework. At least I I know I do. So if we hold on to some of the framework that no longer that no longer work when markets change to a new regime, I think this will bring a lot of opportunities. So yeah, this is definitely one thing I'm looking at. Are we going into a new regime on inflation? Are we looking? Going into a new regime on geopolitics, so yeah, these are like trillion dollar questions. So it's definitely very interesting, very dynamic, like you said. How do you think about getting an edge? Given all that, I mean, to your point, a lot of people talk about geopolitics, but talk talk about being complicated. I mean, to me, a lot of that kind of conversation is largely irrelevant because there's so many moving parts. But when you think about kind of your area of expertise, um, how did you develop your edge um, and what would you say that edge is? So you're focusing obviously on the inflation point, the interest rate point, the global interconnectedness, but that framework requires a lot of work to build to know what not to include in it. Right. Yeah. I think it comes from past failure. So over the years, I try to look at market in different ways. And over the past, some of the framework worked and a lot didn't work. I think I just have a decent memory about what didn't work and in what circumstances that they didn't work. And so, yeah, I think it's just another way of saying probably experience matters. I think when one experiences some of the, a lot of the big ups and downs, say 2018, it was not huge up and down, but it was there or the euro bond crisis back in 2014 and 15, the Greek situations. And then you look at 2020. So you experience all that. So I think that makes you an investor that has a lot of edge versus one that just entered market today, because that person probably did not sit there holding, say, short duration throughout throughout March 2020. So I think that would give one a, a very different perspective on markets and one's risk tolerance. So I think just by being here, we learn a lot more about ourselves and what framework works for ourselves. So I think this matters. Just probably this has a little bit of survival bias that we just accumulate some of the knowledge and say, well, what didn't kill us makes us stronger. So maybe has something to do with that? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, that's a fair way to frame it. I mean, you can't really know what doesn't work, um, or rather, knowing what doesn't work on paper is different than knowing what doesn't work in practice, right? And and you only get that from time, experience, um, and I also just think natural skepticism. Uh, skepticism, right? I think a lot of things that people refer to in the media and in their analysis, the, if you just have even a small amount of experience, you can you can tell is largely nonsense. Yeah, exactly. Skepticism is definitely very helpful. Uh, I think. The sad thing about market is that I think markets have became uh, sorry the media the media has become more opinionated as of late. So a lot of times when we look at uh, the news coverage, I think we are looking we are reading people's opinions rather than what actually is happening. So yeah, that is a bummer. But yeah, I think it's definitely helpful to be skeptic to to be a skeptic. And to be a skeptic about myself as well, I think sometimes when I try to look at a certain part of market or say, if I'm trying to put on a curve trade, then I'll remember, oh, back in 2014 to 2015, 
I put on this tray and I had this naive expectation of how it would work. It totally didn't work out the way I expected. I just keep on remembering that and be skeptical about myself and to criticize myself and not to make the mistake I made before. So I think skepticism is helpful, especially on myself. I think that's a good place to wrap this Twitter space up, given that I'm skeptical of just how I can get through the day with my calendar <laughs> with the things that I have to do coming up here. Everybody, please make sure you follow uh, Victor Shing uh, here on Twitter. And as always, I appreciate those that keep joining these spaces. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.